thing in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. Just wave at them and get their attention and they'll be glad to get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us this evening. Second Kings chapter five. chapter recording the cleansing of leprosy from a man by the name of uh, Naaman the Syrian. And really one of the one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation uh, in all of the Bible in a kind of a rebuking way in a in a encouraging way all at the same time. Chapter five, verse one. Now, Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. So he's the general, the top military commander in the uh, country and military of Syria. At that time, he was uh, uh, highly established, great and honorable in the eyes of his master. And the reason why is because the Lord had given victory to Syria. So very accomplished military commander. Uh, also very, very brave. He was also a mighty man of valor. And then we see the word but, and it's cons- it is, the word but there is considerable. Uh, but he was also a leper. So if you came to Naaman in those days and you say, all right, you're the head of the military. You've got this great reputation in the entire country. You're known for bravery. And then over on the other side of the scale is uh, that you're a leper. Would you give up all of the rest of this to be cleansed of your leprosy? And he probably wouldn't hesitate a half second to say, yes, he'd love to be cleansed of that leprosy. So leprosy in those days and really today was an incurable disease. We know it today is Hansen's disease. And we're able through medical science to be able to arrest Uh, the progress of Hansen's disease in a person's life, but we still can't completely cure or cleanse a person. Now, under the law of Moses, if Naaman was an Israelite, he would have been isolated from the general population of the Jews because of his leprosy. But he is a commander in Syria. Excuse me. A commander in Syria and a Gentile country, they certainly weren't under the law of Moses, had no interest in being that. So as long as his leprosy uh, didn't uh, create a problem with him fulfilling his responsibilities, they allowed him to uh, mingle with the general population in order to carry on uh, his duties. The Syrians had gone out, verse 2, out on raids, and so... He, how do you become a great military commander except you're leading military expeditions? And, and Syria's flexing their muscles at this point in time, making raids out into the surrounding countries and, and uh, evidently including Israel because as a result of one of those raids, they brought back a, a captive, <clears throat> excuse me, a young girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. So he takes her captive as a result of some kind of raid. Uh, These uh, young ladies are taken captive. He makes this young lady a gift to his wife in order to be a servant uh, to uh, to her. And uh, so this young Israelite uh, girl said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, the capital of Israel, for he, that is Elisha, would heal him of his leprosy. So apparently Naaman and his wife, in addition to being all of these other great things, he is evidently a very kind and generous master because here you have a girl who is a servant, a slave, and yet she is concerned for the welfare of her master. And so she does some sanctified boasting related to this prophet, whether she'd met Elisha or not, we don't know, but she'd heard about his great miracles. She has compassion on her master for having this leprosy. And so wanting him to be cleansed of the leprosy, she makes known to him that there is a cure for this cleanse, this leprosy and the cleansing that you need from it by a prophet that's in the land of Israel. We can imagine 
the hope that all of a sudden explodes into uh, the heart and the mind of, of Naaman that he could possibly be cured and cleansed of this leprosy. One of the things that it teaches us is sometimes we get uh, put as Christians. It's funny where God puts us, isn't it? All around the world, and the positions that he gives us and the neighborhoods he puts us into, and the apartment complexes and the cities that he puts us into and the jobs that he gives us and all these things. And sometimes it's very easy to look and say, well, I'm, I have such an obscure position. I mean, here I am. I work in this metal shop in downtown Modesto. And, uh, and I work on these drills and I produce these replacement parts that are hard to get for and, and no longer being made by the major manufacturers to keep things going. What in the world could I ever do for Christ? And here she is. She's got a position. She's in a foreign land. She's been taken it as a slave. She has, she has as powerless a position as you can have in life in those days. But she talks about her God and the prophets of her God. There's some, again, sanctified boasting concerning the Lord in that environment. Then it's up to God to take it where God wants to take it. So God puts us wherever he puts us, and we talk about the Lord and the things of the Lord in those environments, and then it's not pressure on me to make something big of that. That's God's responsibility, not to waste my life, not to waste your life. And that's a responsibility that he takes seriously and, 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 and will be faithful to use us in whatever the environment might be. And so I like this, this young girl here and, and her boldness, her love for her master and, and his unsaved condition, so to speak, and a desire for him to be made whole. And so Naaman went in and he told his master, who was the king, saying, Thus and thus said the girl is from the land of Israel. I mean, that I, there's, I can get cleansed of my leprosy in Israel if you just send me to the prophet. And the king of Israel said, Go now. As if you like to hear that. And I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he departed. He took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of clothing in a time in human history when to have one change of clothes was a big deal. But it tells us, number one, this great gift that is being sent with Naaman is it is a payment to the king for the cleansing of Naaman. It also tells us how... Uh, greatly the king valued Naaman. Because there could even be kind of a selfish angle to all of this. Great generals and commanders, they weren't a dime a dozen. Leaders are not a dime a dozen. Not in the military, not anywhere. And so he, it serves him very well to have that king cleansed and not to die a premature death on the basis of leprosy. And so Naaman, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and here's how it read. Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. It's an incurable disease. And so it happened, the king reads this letter, and he tore his clothes, a sign of grieving, like his heart's been torn, and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive? And this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy. Only God can heal of leprosy. And so what does he do? He's sending him this letter demanding that I heal this man of his leprosy. That This can't be on the level. Therefore, please consider, he tells those around him, see how he seeks a quarrel with me. This guy's not on the up and up. He's looking for a fight with me, an excuse to go to war with us. That's what's going on here uh, with this letter. And so uh, he, uh, he didn't realize that Naaman wasn't expecting him to heal the leprosy, but, but that there was a prophet in the land could, that could do it. But Elisha is no more... In uh, Joram's mind, as anything would be in his mind. I mean, he didn't. He thought as, as little of Elisha because of his wickedness. Uh, uh, he thought as little of Elisha as he possibly uh, could do. And so it was. 
When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he gets the whole story, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please send them to me. Of course, you can't do anything about this. You wicked, disgusted, well, anyway, (laughs) this unrepentant condition. But here's the point. Please let him come to me. And then notice that word, and, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. So the aim, Elisha says, um, send him to me. I'll cleanse him of his leprosy. God's going to do it in his life. But it isn't the aim of Elisha here, and very important to notice in verse 8, isn't that Naaman will go back to Syria just being cleansed of his leprosy. He wants Naaman to have a power encounter, a real living encounter with the true and the living God as a result of God cleansing him of his leprosy. I want him to know that there is a real God in this world and that I am the servant of that real God. I want Naaman to go back to uh, Syria knowing that true and the living God, the God of Israel. So that's what he's up to. That's the spirit, spiritual intent of the miracle as far as Elisha is concerned. And so they, Naaman went with his horses and his chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, probably, you know, Elisha, as we read through the scriptures, he probably lived very, very simply. And here is this general that comes up. He's riding a chariot. You know, the very he's probably in an escalade. Uh, pulls up at the front and he's got his posse with him and the whole thing. And there's this little old place that uh, Elisha's living in. And so he comes pulling up to the house, big presentation and and uh, all, all of this stuff going on as he comes to Elisha's house. And Elisha didn't even go, didn't even open the door to go out and see him. He sent out a messenger. This guy's like the boss of the whole. He's like number two in the whole region. And Elisha stays in a little place and he sends out Gehazi here. Go tell him what he, he needs to do. And so Gehazi goes out and says, listen, here's what Elisha says. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored to you. Be cleansed of your leprosy and, and you will be clean. So he doesn't give him any kind of, uh, of magic or hocus pocus. He just tells him you'll be cleansed as a result of just simple obedience to what it is that the God of Israel is telling you to do in your circumstance. Now, um, the reason probably that Elisha didn't come out personally to uh, Naaman was he didn't want Naaman to think that the miracle that he's about to receive had anything to do with him. He's, he's really, we're going to see in a moment, he's really, really upset with Elisha. But Elisha's doing this purposely so that when Naaman is cleansed of his leprosy, he'll know this thing is 100% all God, and he's not going to be building like a crutch on Elisha. And that's just the way that God wanted it to do. didn't have anything to do with Elisha. God said, the miracle doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm the messenger. I deliver the message. This is totally all about God. Now, you notice Naaman's reaction. He became furious. I don't like Pee Wee Herman to be furious at me, let alone an accomplished general of an entire nation that could just take my head off any time he wanted to do that. So Naaman is absolutely furious over what has happened to him, how he's been treated. And he went away from the house. And this is what he said. He said, indeed, I said to myself, this was the the expectations that he brought to the whole situation. Surely the prophet's going to come out to me and he's going to stand and he's, and he's going to call on the name of, of the Lord his God and he's going to wave his hand over the place and do some kind of a big theatrical kind of deal and then heal the leprosy. That's the, that's the expectation that he brought to the situation. Now he's upset on two levels. Number one, he didn't get treated the way he felt he ought to get treated. I'm the general. Of the nation of Syria. And you don't even come out your front door and acknowledge me as a person. You send that messenger out to give me this message. And he is really, 
really upset. His pride's been hurt. His his sense of self-importance has been hurt. As it relates to the gospel, there's a lot of people, they don't like the fact that they have to get saved like everybody else has to get saved. Do you know who I am? And i got to get saved like that riffraff over there? Yes. You're just high-quality riffraff, but you're riffraff that needs to be saved too. But some people get really upset that we all got to get saved the same way. God sees us all as sinners in need of the same salvation, the same Savior. So he's really upset and his pride has been hurt. And, and he's really upset over the whole method of, of how God wants to cleanse him of his leprosy. I mean, the prescription just seems illogical uh, to him. And, and he complains about the river, the Jordan River. He says, are not the uh, Arbana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, beautiful rivers? Aren't those rivers better than all of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? And he turned away and he went away, turned and he went in a rage. He says, you're sending me that muddy, old, dirty Jordan River? When we got two great rivers in Damascus? Now, one of the things that's fun to do is to take a trip to Israel. And as Christians who know the Old Testament, we love the Jordan River because we know all these things that God has done. Jesus and John the Baptist and all through the Old Testament and the Jordan River. It's our favorite river in the whole world, except for you fishermen. So we're fond of it. And you take people then on a trip to Israel, and especially now because they don't release so much water out of the Sea of Galilee to fill the the Jordan River to flow south into the Dead Sea, it's hardly a creek. There's one place on one of the days where we go to Caesarea Philippi, we drive by in the bus, we say, oh, now be careful to notice right here on the right, that's the Jordan River. It's narrower than two lanes of Pellendale. And people look, I mean, you, you can't even skip a stone across it. And in a large part of it, as it goes down through the center of the land, it just looks like kind of just a muddy little creek. But it, it runs all through the year. So it's not, it really isn't impressive. And it is muddy and you can't see to the bottom. And they got all these crystal clear. And it just doesn't make any sense. What's, what's the, why this river over any uh, other uh, river? Is this, how could this Thing that God is telling me, cleanse me of my leprosy in any way. And, and so he thought it would, he'd get cleansed of his leprosy when Elisha would come out and do a song and a dance and a big thing and a, all this kind of drizzle, 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 and, and uh, Mr. Wizard, and then he'd be healed of his, cleansed of his leprosy. And the problem is with him, what he doesn't understand about God yet, he will understand it, is that the cure was not in the water of the Jordan. The cure was obeying God. He was going to be cleansed of his leprosy because that's how God chose to cleanse him of his leprosy. And God gets to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whether it has to do with the cleansing of a leper or whether it has to do with the saving of a sinner. He's the boss. He gets to do it however he wants uh, to do it. And so he, he it says, I don't see how doing this that he's called me to do can make any difference related to my condition. This is an embarrassment and this is an outrage. And so he leaves in a rage. Now, he's got some good servants with him. And his servants came near and they spoke to him. They weren't as... Uh, emotionally involved in the situation as he was. They didn't take it as an affront. And they said to him, My father, term of respect, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? If he told you you had to run up and down Mount Everest 16 times, or you had to go out and slay a thousand whatevers out there, or... You know, do this or this or that great thing. You would have loved the challenge and you'd have grabbed onto it and you'd have done it in, in an instant. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. So you say, 
What's the harm in trying it? We're going to walk all the way back to Syria. And you're not going to get in the Jordan River and find out about whether this thing is true or not. So if Elisha had made these great demands of you, you'd, you would have done it. But you won't do this because it's such a simple command. Why don't you do it because it's so simple and then see what happens. And Naaman, to his credit, he went down. He dipped seven times in the Jordan. Number three, number four, boy, do I feel stupid. Number five, number six, number seven. And then according to the saying of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Baby skin. And he was cleansed of his leprosy. So he humbled himself. Obeyed God's commandment on how to be cleansed of leprosy. And he discovered that the power was not in the river. The power was just simply in obeying God's instruction. Now again, as I said, in this incident we have one of the most beautiful lessons concerning salvation. I think in all of the Old Testament and sin, leprosy is used as a symbol of sin uh, in the Old Testament and really throughout the Bible. And one of the reasons is, is because leprosy in those days, again, even today, it was humanly incurable. You could not cure yourself of leprosy and no human being could cure you of leprosy. The other thing about leprosy, interesting in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is always spoken of needing to be cleansed rather than being healed. And in the same way, sin, our sin problem, our sin issue, it can't be healed. We need to be cleansed of our sin. And so Naaman, he balks at the very point that so many people do today concerning the gospel and salvation. They think to themselves, what difference can something so simple as putting my faith in Jesus, how can putting my faith in Jesus have any bearing on the forgiveness of my sins or my salvation at all? It doesn't make any sense to us. So that's that Greek mind, that Gentile mind that Paul spoke about to the Corinthians. He said, for the Jews seek a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. They think and people think today, how can this make any difference as it relates to my eternity? And, and I don't understand it. And again, if God had told them that salvation was found in climbing the highest mountain in the whole world or doing a million good deeds or praying for a million hours, they'd attempt to accomplish it with all of their might. But because God has made salvation a free gift and not a product of human effort, they wonder if it can be true. Can cleansing of our sins be that easy as easy as trusting in Christ? And people really stumble here. They say, I don't see what difference that that can make. And I think like Naaman and that dipping in the Jordan River, if we'll obey God's prescription, we will discover it to be true, not just concerning leprosy, but as it relates to salvation. The gospel is powerful, not because it is hopelessly difficult or complex. The gospel is powerful because it is the way God has chosen to save mankind for his own reasons, many of which we know in the scriptures. It's powerful because it's God's way that he has chosen to save mankind. D.L. Moody rightly declared that Naaman had two problems, leprosy and pride. And it wouldn't be until he put his pride down that he would be able to experience God's cleansing. And I'll tell you, that's true of many a sinner today where a person has to put down their pride. And you know what is one of the worst expressions of the pride that you hear over and over and over again. Well, I think God should save people this way. Whenever I hear that, and maybe it's because when I came to know Christ, I'm not, I'm not wanting to needlessly offend anyone here tonight. It's just a gift. But when I came to know the Lord... 
I was so happy that there was a way of salvation. I wasn't going to demand of God three ways or ten ways or a hundred ways. That's his business. When we were kids and somebody would say something. And so I come to, when I came to know the Lord, uh, apparently I, could, I have my own problems, but I wasn't filled with that level of a sense of self-importance that I can tell God how he can choose to save the whole world. That's pretty arrogant when people say that. I don't believe there should be one way. I think it should be this way. If I were God, then I, I would do it this way. When I was a kid, we used to say a saying when somebody was filled with their own self-importance. We'd say, who died and made you Pope? And I'm not trying to be needlessly offensive to the Roman Catholic Church, but that was the idea. Who, who turned that position over to you? That what you have to say is so important. And I think of the same thing. I don't always say it, but in my heart. You hear people over and over and over again who have their own sense of self-importance and they're going to tell God how we ought to save people. And I just think to myself, who do you think you are? And what elevated sense of yourself do you have that you think you can chime in on this? What prophetic scriptures were given in the Old Testament to testify to your coming? What three and a half year record of peerless, perfect teaching do we have from your life that can change without exception any human being that will live by that teaching? What three and a half year record do we have of your raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers and healing them from all manner of diseases? And you're going to stand up and chime in and discredit God because you've got a different idea. That bugs me. God gets to save people how he wants to save people. And when people come to realize what we all should come to realize about ourselves, and that is that we are sinners desperately in need of a salvation, any salvation that God would provide, again, to be thankful for that salvation. To be thankful there is a way to heaven. And not to argue about, is it a narrow way? Is it a broad way? Is it a this way? Is it a that way? Salvation happens to be a narrow way. That's the true way. And all that matters is, how has God chosen to save mankind? And then I want to get on that way, whether it's broad or narrow. It happens to be narrow. Now I know I'll be saved because God has spoken that. You think about how it's just folly. And I hope that if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord yet and you haven't run for the back door and slammed it on your way out, that you would give that some consideration. Two great rules in the universe. There is a God, number one. Number two, you're not him. It's a funny thing. Sometimes I'm getting ready for church. I dress myself. I pick out all my clothes and much to my wife. And I've gotten better through the years. So I got blue jeans on, you know. And I got these gold toe socks that I buy at Macy's because they last a million years. And I'm telling you, you can turn on every light in the house and put it under the sunlight. And sometimes you can't tell the difference between the black sock and the blue sock, the navy blue. We can't even cure ourselves of the common cold. We're going to all come down to a place somewhere in the course of this life where we're going to strain and we won't even know whether we're matching our socks in the morning and we're going to tell God how we ought to save mankind. It's crazy 
We've got to move on here. But I'm glad I got all that off my chest. <laughs> None of that God ought to do it this way stuff. You ever do, I'm not done. I, you ever, you ever said something? You ever done anything in life? I remember one thing in spe- specifically when I was in uh, junior high school. And I thought, man, if I had three wishes, I'd use one of these wishes in this way toward a a young man who was in that same class that I was in. And then you come to find out later, once you know all the facts and the whole situation, that what you had wished to do or determined to do would have been an absolute disaster in the situation. How many wrong decisions do we need to make in life to disqualify ourselves I'm trying to compete with God for his position. Well, I'm glad to be saved and I'm, ha- I'm glad to have a God to submit to. And so he's cleansed just like a little baby, his skin. And he returned to the man of God. So he comes back and uh, makes a journey about 15 miles to come back to Samaria from going to the Jordan River there. And he comes with all of his aides, got his, this posse that is with him and all. And he stood before Elisha there and he came and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Mission accomplished. That's all that Elisha wanted to do was give him the instructions, get out of the way, so this guy would have a true living encounter with the true and the living God and come to a faith in the God of Israel. And that happened in Naaman's life. And so he then comes now and he offers this gift of all this money and these ten changes of clothing from uh, uh, to Elisha. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing from you. He would not receive the money and, again, probably discernment from the Lord. And he recognized, if I take any money or gift from this man, this guy is going... He comes out of this whole power world. He comes out of this whole corporate world. And he's going to have to come to the conclusion that somehow he played a part in it and his gift and his reward played a part in it. And so he takes by the Spirit of God and says, no, I don't want a penny from you. This what what has happened here has happened between you and God. It's a pure gift, great uh, gift of grace that's been given to you. I don't want anything that you have. And so he he refuses it. And he urged him, name it. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. He's so thankful. He's a new believer. Give everything he has to this guy that helped him come into the truth. He urged him to take it. And Elisha wouldn't budge. He refused to take it. And Naaman then said, well, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to any to other gods, but to the Lord. So they had in those days, the Gentile nations, they had this idea that in order to worship one of the gods of one of the nations, that you had to set up your little altar or your little uh, uh, or where you would worship from the dirt, the soil of the land of that God. So the God would feel at home. So he's still got some things he's got to work through a little bit. So he wants to take, you're not going to take a gift from me. May I take two mule loads of dirt so that I can then worship the Lord on that dirt in the land of Syria so that the God of Israel will feel comfortable to meet with me there. It's misguided. But he, but his heart is is just pure and very sincere. I mean, he he's he's all about the Lord now. He wants to worship the Lord. I mean, this is a he's a believer at this uh, uh, at this point. And he says he's got a problem though. He's starting to think about the ramifications of being born again here, so to speak, on his life. He said, "Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant." My master, he goes into the temple of Rimon, which was a false god there in Syria. 
And he worships in that temple and he leans on my hand. I'm his right hand man. I lead him in there and, and, and he goes with me. I'm his, I'm his accompaniment in that. And I bow down and, and, and when I go with him there and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. He says, I, he says, what am I supposed to do here? He's going to force me to do this. I don't believe in this God. I believe in the God of Israel. And, and will the Lord pardon me related to this thing? And then Elisha said to him, go in peace. And so he departed from him. A short distance. And so Elisha here, uh, he doesn't approve or disapprove of what uh, the Naaman is saying here. He just simply sent him on his way. And Elisha realizes, okay, just like every new Christian, all Christians, but certainly of new Christians, God's got a lot of things he's going to work out. A lot of things in those early days, weeks and months and years. And so Elisha realizes, I've taken this guy as far as God wanted me to take him in this situation. And so God will work out all of these other things when he gets back to Syria and continues to move forward. So it's like if somebody comes up to me and, and they say, I'd like to receive the Lord tonight into my life. And I come out of this whole background and everything and I want to be saved. And I sit down and I begin to pray with them and, and uh, they pray to receive the Lord into their life and all. I don't... And, and I become aware of maybe uh, 30 things as they're just talking that I realize God's going to be changing all of that, which is what he does in our lives. He completely changes our lives. And that but I look at it and I'm not going to tear into all 30 of those items. That person's not ready to hit that yet. And I don't even know what God is going to do first. I mean, you take, for instance, the way I like to think about it is here we come to know the Lord and, and here's 50 things God's going to change in the first five years in our lives. We always think the first thing he's going to change is he's going to make help us quit smoking. So we put that right up at number one. Now I've got to work on this. Not, quitting smoking may be number 17 on that person's list because all these they've got all these other acute needs in their life that God needs to change. I don't know what the order is going to be. So they leave my presence and I know that he, God is going to do in their life what he's done in my life. And he's just going to be able to start knocking these things out one, two, three at a time. And that person's going to be OK. Because they're going to go off and continue their relationship with the Lord. And that's kind of what's what's happening here. So he had what needed to happen in Israel through Elisha. That happened. Go in peace. God knows how to take care of uh, the people that he's purchased in his own blood. And so he departed uh, from him. Naaman did. And he began to go uh, uh, to depart back to Syria. And after he had gone a short distance and he's probably traveling pretty slowly. He's got a big entourage that is with him. He's enjoying the afterglow of this great experience. He's been cleansed of his leprosy. He's come to faith in the true and the living God. That's a pretty good journey home. All of it for free. What kind of a God is this? And so Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, he saw all that money leaving. Oh, what I could buy with that money. All those clothes leaving. I haven't had a new set of clothes in I don't know how long. So Elisha, the servant, or Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, uh, the man of God said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. He's letting all that money get away. But as the Lord lives, somehow he justifies this in his mind spiritually, I will run after him and I'm going to take something from him. I don't like that word take. Notice what he thinks of Naaman. He said, look, my master has spared Naaman, my new brother in Christ. My new brother in the Lord. That's not how he views him. He has spared Naaman, this Syrian. These enemies of Israel and he's going away with all that money. And if there's any group of people that we ought to be feel, feel free to fleece and separate from their money as these dirty pagans that are always persecuting us. So that's in his heart. 
And so Gehazi, in accordance with his heart, he pursued Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he recognized him as the guy that brought the message. He got down from his chariot to meet him. And he said, is all well? I mean, this guy's his life has changed. Everything all right? And Gehazi said, all is well. My master, speaking of Elisha, he draws Elisha into this. My master has sent me saying, indeed, now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Kind of a long story, the whole deal. They've come in. They really don't have any clothes and they don't have any money. And we could sure use what we turned down just a few minutes ago. So please give them a talent of silver and uh, and two changes of garments. And so Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him. And he bound the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. And he handed them to two of his servants. I mean, this was a lot of money. You can't just one guy carrying it. And they carried it ahead of of uh, Gehazi until they got close to the city. Then Gehazi didn't want him to be seen by anyone while he's sneaking and doing this. And so when he came to the citadel, he took them from their land, from their hand, stored the money away in the uh, house, and then he let the men go and they departed. The interesting thing about Gehazi uh, here is he really uh, fleeces uh, Naaman uh, you notice his lying and his, the request that he makes here. So he lies, but the thing that he does in, in verse 22 is that he doesn't just lie on his own behalf. He lies, he, he drops Elisha's name, and then he lies, and so he's affecting uh, Elisha's reputation. He's bringing Elisha's good name and reputation into this scheme. The second thing that he does that's terrible, and the lessons are very, very practical and very, very important. You've got so many people scamming and scheming on God's people to separate them from their money. It's terrible. And they call themselves Christians. It's terrible, 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 terrible. Shame on them. Shame on them. I mean, Christian love, the body of Christ, all of that. But I mean, these people are just terrible, terrible people. What they do, the schemes. There's no grace toward them and what they're doing. And here is a man who is using a position that God has given him, a very high position of influence, the servant of the most famous prophet at the time in Israel. And he uses that that position that he has to separate this guy from his money. And he targets, worst of all, he targets a new believer. I'll tell you, the easiest people in the whole world to target, if you want to target them, and it's a disgrace, is to target a new Christian and separate them from their wealth. Because you see, here's a new Christian and they're so indebted to you, they feel you're the one that shared the gospel with them. You're the one that taught the Bible study and they heard and a light went on. And you're the one and you're the one. And it's so easy to just step in there and get a pair of shoes out of it. Or a jacket or whatever the thing might be. And try and fleece them. Because they associate now you as an instrument in the whole thing. And I mean, they're just completely vulnerable to abuse of power. In, in that way. And he abuses that that kind of uh, of uh, of power. And then not only does he harm Elisha's reputation here, but he really harms God's reputation as well. He made it appear. Listen, we've got two of these uh, students coming to the school of the prophets. They don't have any money. They don't have any clothing. And uh, so could you provide it? And what it made it look like is that God couldn't take care of his people. So God is enabled. He's kind of he could do he can do. The, he's really good on this leprosy thing. But man, he runs out of money like you can't believe. And you've got the money. And so could you. And this is a reflection now on the Lord. Sometimes you'll hear people like on fundraisers on Christian television where they'll say God needs you like he's never needed you before trying to raise money. It's always true, of course, because God's never needed you before. But they don't mean it that way. What a terrible thing to say that God needs you like he's never needed you before financially, like he's broke, like he didn't 
speak all of this into existence. Like in heaven, the streets aren't going to be gold. He doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills. And he gets represented in this way. And I exhort myself not to represent him this way. So he's really sullying the reputation even of God. And, and he's really doing potential harm to Naaman because God intended Naaman to just leave that place in his mind, not cluttered by giving reward or anything, just to leave that place. God loved me. He loved a Gentile. He's cleansed me. He's opened my eyes up to him. I have a relationship with him. I worship him now. And God didn't want him thinking about money or giving anything back. He didn't want any of that to be tainted in that way. And now Gehazi's done it. And he's going to pay a price for it now. And so he went in after he stashed all of the money. And he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where'd you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. It's like talking with an eight-year-old boy. That ate a whole jar of chocolate chip cookies and they're all around his mouth. And you're just asking him what happened to the cookie. I don't know. <laughs> and then Elisha said to him. Your he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. And then he said to him, did my heart, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back? From his chariot to meet you. How are you going to fool a guy like Elisha? He said. God gave me revelation. I watched. The whole thing. Here is Elisha. He was so protective. Of the faith. And the new life of this man. And then he watches his servant. Go out and take advantage of a situation he wouldn't take advantage of, wouldn't dream of taking advantage of. And he watched the whole thing as God gave him revelation. And yes, my servant Elisha and God, and he's broke, and could you and the money and bringing it back in. And he said, my whole, I, 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 when he says my heart here, he said, I, 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 I. I watched the whole thing and just emotionally went through the whole deal as I watched what you did out there. And he said, is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? So apparently, this is what Gehazi wanted the money for, was to buy this, these things. And therefore, the leprosy of Naaman, he said, shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. No such thing as secret sin. The sin can be kept secret from other people, but it can never be kept secret from God. And so God's judgment on uh, Gehazi here, very uh, ironic in a sense and, and very, very fitting punishment. Gehazi had gone to take something from Naaman and the Lord made sure that he received Naaman's leprosy as well as his wealth. And so Gehazi's leprosy demonstrated that this judgment had come from God and he lost his position as servant to uh, Elisha as well because a, 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 a leper could not hold that position. And so the passage is very, very happy, the chapter and the first part of it. And the second one is a very, very sober warning, but it's a very needed warning concerning covetousness especially among leaders in the body of Christ and how God sees that. And, and so the uh, importance of being careful about those things, God honoring about those things, otherwise we can end up on a shelf and disqualified or a castaway, as Paul put it when he wrote to the Corinthians. And so when, when God sees in a leader like Gehazi, that this person is just feels free to fleece my people. This is the hardness of his heart. Then what God has to do at that point is to recognize this person is a danger to my people. And so now I'm going to do something that will disqualify him so that it separates him from contact and influence with my people. And the most effective way that he could do it uh, 3000 years ago was to smite him with leprosy. And so that's what he did. Uh, smoke Gehazi with leprosy. What he does to us today is he just simply puts us on 
the shelf. Chapter 6, we'll go as far as we can here. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. So Elisha had all of these, there were these schools of the prophets that had been established by Samuel, at least initiated by Samuel, where these young men would go and they would be taught the scriptures so that they could become influential for God in the nation of Israel, even in its apostate state. And so they are evidently at the one of these kind of regional uh, schools that is close to Jericho and uh, they have a problem. And the problem that they have is that their dormitories and their meeting places are too small. So that's a good problem. That means that even in the midst of all of the apostasy of Israel at that time, and it was a very ungodly period, there were lots of uh, young men who were wanting to make a difference for God and there wasn't room to house them. It also speaks to the effectiveness of Elisha's ministry. These young men saw something in Elisha and they said, we want to follow that rather than this king that we see. So he's stirring up the sanctified, the heroic, the, the noble inside of these, these young men. And so we don't have enough room. The place is too small. And here's their solution. Let us go to the Jordan River nearby and let every man take a beam from there and then we'll make a place where we may dwell. And so we'll go down, we'll cut down some trees, get the logs, bring them back, and then we'll build a bigger place. This is fabulous. No building permits, no anything. So you just go down there, cut down some logs, and build something. And so Elisha said, now I don't know if you want to sleep in there overnight, depending on who's putting it together. So Elisha answered and he said, go. He gave them permission. And then one of them said, please consent to go with your servants. They liked him. They liked him being around even in this kind of thing. And so he answered, I'll go. And I think it's also nice to notice that these students of theology were not afraid to get their hands dirty. It's a great training is going on. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they began to cut down the trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. So it wasn't secured properly. And some of you, if you've ever done some cutting, you say, man, I don't want to fix that right now. I'm just going to keep chopping. I hope I can get through this cord right here and I'll fix that later. And then you don't and the axe head goes off. Well, he's near water and the axe head goes flying out into the Jordan River And he cried out and he said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. Elisha, I lost this axe head and it's borrowed. And it's just total agony. Now, in those days, at that particular point in time, most of those kind of implements were being made from bronze. To have an iron axe head was to have something super, super valuable. And the only thing worse than losing your own axe head was to lose the axe head of someone else, the tool that you had borrowed. I don't know if you've ever borrowed a tool that's valuable and it broke while you were using it. And so you go online to try and find out how much does it cost to replace this? Twenty four hundred dollars. Or whatever it might be, 120, whatever. So it's, he's really, it's a sinking feeling here. That, that well, I don't, I'm not being clever. That's just, uh, that I'd be deeply troubled if I said something like that on purpose, and you should be as well. So, but here it is. It goes, now remember the Jordan River. It's just this muddy kind of creek. It's, it's deep, but it's, it's muddy. You can't just say, oh, there it is right down there. It's flew out there and they just know the general direction of where it is. And so he's he's so upset about this loss. And so the man of God said, where did it fall? He asked him to go over. And this this is one of the one of the great pictures of uh, in terms of Elisha as a picture of the heart of the Lord. And there's so many, but this one is is so powerful. So here this axe head is gone and gone into the water. And you think axe head. Schmack's head. What's the big deal? You're going to bother me and bother God over an axe head. And yet Elisha comes because he's he has the heart of God. And he said, show me where it fell. The Bible says for us as Christians that we are to cast our cares on him, on God, because 
That's a reason word. Because he cares for us. There is nothing so small or so insignificant that he doesn't care about it related to our lives. If it's a concern for us. He cares about everything. Sometimes people think, I can only bring to God the big things. He doesn't really care about axe heads or this thing or that, or little tiny trivial things. I mean, he's running the whole universe. He can run the whole universe and take care of our little things too. If it concerns us, he wants to be involved in it. Uh, I remember... Uh, <laughs> The first time uh, someone is a pastor, and I mean, we're talking about a million years ago, for me at least, feels like it. But someone came up to me and they wanted prayer and they wanted me to pray for their cat. You know how hard that is for me? <laughs> I'm a dog guy all the way. A cat, they're just... They're just fodder for dogs. What do we? I can't help it if you bought one of those and invested a bunch of money in it. So they come to me, absolutely the wrong person. My cat has this and that and the whole thing, and it's got infantigo and tomain poisoning. It's got this and the whole thing. I'm going to pray for the cat. But in all seriousness, I mean, I, I did not and I would not even hesitate in a second. If that issue is important to that person, it's important to God. We prayed for that cat. Now, if she came back to me five weeks in a row and every prayer request was for the cat, I probably would begin to probe about the depth of her spiritual life to make sure that her whole prayer life and focus of her life wasn't on something as small as a cat. I mean, are you praying for people to get saved? Do you have a concern for the lost in India? What I mean, is this just a small part of your larger life? But if there's anything and it, and it gives me such boldness and it's a great encouragement to our prayer life where something has gone sideways or something has happened and say, I'm going to lift that up to the Lord right now, knowing that he cares for me and that it's a concern to him. And, and here is Elisha, and he's representing God in exactly that way in, in this passage. So it's important. This guy's lost it. Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And so he cut off a, a, a stick, a piece of wood, and he threw it into the Jordan River in that area. And as a result of that, a miracle, he made the iron to float. And therefore, he said, pick it up. For yourself. And so he reached out his hand and he took the iron axe head, the miracle, and it was retrieved for him. So you have a picture, beautiful picture of the supernatural of God. Nothing, nothing is too small to bring to God and ask for a miracle of his intervention in that situation at all. It's a picture of retrieval. The Bible, the Bible says that the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, he said, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. I am convinced that in any passage that we're reading in all of the Old Testament, and some of it will be made more clear to us, I think, once we're in heaven. But all of it testifies to Christ, something about his nature, something about his heart, his power, the heart of of God, all of it does. And so here you have this beautiful picture of retrieval in the scriptures. It's fascinating that in order to retrieve the iron, miraculously retrieve that iron axe head, he throws a branch, a piece of wood into the water. And we know that Peter refers to the cross of Christ as the tree in one of his epistles. And so you have this beautiful picture of the retrieval of sinful man and the miraculous of it. The cross of Jesus Christ thrown into the streams of, of the human condition in human history in order that the, the miracle of retrieval of our lost lives could occur. All of it a, a picture of God. A, a, 
a shadow of the greater thing that God has done for us in retrieving us. And it was every bit the miracle in order to do that in our lives. We're hopelessly lost. The cross got added to human history so that people like you and I could be retrieved and we could be saved. And we give the Lord praise for that salvation tonight. We'll stop there this evening and we'll pick it up in verse 8 next week, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries. So let's stand together.